Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Church, Pastor Tyler here. Welcome back. Hey, missed you last week, but man, Pastor Banning just brought a grand slam. Man, believing the truth is such an important part of us experiencing that freedom that is promised by God. I just want to say thank you to Pastor Bannon again. He's not only a mentor, but he's an overseer of our church. So what a sweet thing to have somebody whose family of the house bring such a great word last week. And today, we're getting back into a series that I am absolutely loving titled, The Making of a Great Disciple. If you're in your house right now, say, great disciple. Just say, great disciple. I don't want to be a good disciple. I don't want to be an okay disciple. I want to be a great disciple. And so what we're going to do is we're going to almost pivot a little bit in this series, and we're going to camp out in Revelation for the next few weeks. We're going to learn how to become a great disciple in one of the most fascinating but also confusing books at times. And the part we're going to look at in the next few weeks is just the letters to the churches. Now, Jesus comes and writes these seven letters to these seven churches. And can I just say something real quick? When Rachel and I were dating, especially in the very beginning, she would shoot me a text and she would say, hey, I had a great time last, uh, last night uh, at the movie. I can't wait to hang out again. I would read that text multiple times because I cared so much about her words to me. And then now that we're married, it's, it's interesting. Nobody else on this planet besides Jesus, words carry the weight that Rachel does. When my wife tells me I do a good job on Sunday, ooh, I feel good. Can I just be honest? If you don't think I did a good job on Sunday, I really don't care. But if my wife says, man, you killed it, I'm feeling like a million bucks. I've had Rachel sometimes say, I've, I've, I preached a message, and she goes, you know what? I think you should preach that one again. She might as well have just punched me in the face, okay? Because my, war, my wife's words carry so much weight. Oh, so much weight. So catch this real quick. Our Savior, our Creator, the one who died on a cross, conquered the grave, knitted us in our mother's womb, planned our life from A to Z, the one that loves us more than anyone else could ever love us, the one that has the greatest plan for us, has written a letter to us. He's given us words to not glance at, not to just take a look at, but to look at it, just like a text message from the girl that you have the biggest crush on, and you read it multiple times, and you go through it over and over again, and you're saying, what does she mean, great time? Was she saying that she loves me now? Is she saying that, like, I, I'm her future husband? She wants to hang out again? Does she say hang out again for the rest of her life? Is that what this text means? You read over it again and again. Oh, but to take the word of God, and to take these seven letters to the seven churches. And what is a church? It's a group of disciples. So to take these letters to these disciples, Jesus' heart for the disciples is saying, read my letters to you. Value my words. I don't want you just to read them. I want them to become a part of who you are. In these letters, you'll see three things that happen every time. You'll see an invitation from God. The, the word that we say in uh, an invitation is really you'll see repentance is going to be asked of God. All seven letters have one thing in common. Repentance is required. Can I tell you great disciples? A great disciple is a repenting disciple. Repentance is a part of the cocktail of what it means to be a great disciple. So all seven, Jesus is always saying, repent, aka turn around, come to greatness. Turn around and come to me. So you'll see that in all seven chapters, uh, seven letters to the churches. Another thing you'll see is warnings. Oh, what a kind God. What a kind God to say, hey, stop. I have a warning for you. If you keep going this way, your life will not work out the way it's supposed to work out. Oh, what a kind God that says greatness is not this way, greatness is that way. Another thing that I love about our God is he celebrates. He celebrates the greatness that is happening. Can I just say this? And this is actually from my buddy Tommy. He was telling me this uh, recently and just pierced me. He said, man, Jesus is the bar of our perfection, but we should be the bar of progress. And really what Jesus is saying is he's celebrating progress. 
He's celebrating this amazing thing that uh, you haven't become everything I called you to be, but you're on your way. Three things, celebration, warning, and repentance are going to find in these letters. Now, reason why uh, I, the series is titled The Making of a Great Disciple is I believe that great disciples don't happen on accident. There is intentionality. Uh, just like you make a great meal, it has to be mapped out. It has to be labored over. It has to have time and patience. Just like a great disciple, it has to be mapped out. There has to be teaching. There has to be time. There has to be testing. There has to be um, these things that you have to go through to actually get baked in the oven, if you will, and come out a great disciple. Well, the thing I want to touch on today is I want to talk to the disciples today about not getting lost in your journey. And really what happened to these seven churches is they all got lost a little bit. And so if I could just do a poetic title for my message today, and the message for the next few weeks is, these are letters to lost disciples. Letters to lost disciples. And Jesus is writing this letter to lost disciples saying, you're lost, come back. You've lost your way, come back. You've lost your purpose. You'll see in Ephesus that they're lost in legalism. You'll see in another church they're lost in just being asleep. You'll see in the church of Laodicea that they're lost in comfort. And Jesus is taken from those lost places and trying to bring them back to their purpose and fulfillment. These are letters to lost disciples. It's interesting that you can be found, but you get lukewarm and you get lost again. I, I, I want to uh, kind of show you who we're going to uh, learn from today, and it's the Church of Laodicea. The Church of Laodicea. Now, um, the Church of Laodicea is fascinating. They know about Jesus. They know the greatness of God, but the, the reality is that they've gotten lost. Lost in what? Well, how did they get lost? What, what does it look like to be lost? I think there's a lot of different ways you can be lost. I, I'll, let me use an illustration real quick. Uh, my, my wife will walk in the kitchen sometimes, and I'll look like this in the kitchen. And she'll be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I forgot why I came in the kitchen. I came in the kitchen for a reason. I just, I can't remember why I'm here. And I look lost in the kitchen. And so I'm lost in the kitchen. I'm like, why did I come in here? And I'm like, I don't remember. Well, might as well just get a bottle of water at least. You ever have those moments where you walk into a room, and you're like, I came into this room for a reason, but I forget why I'm here. Have you had this moment where you're telling somebody a story and then they're talking and you, you're thinking of something and you want to tell them like, oh, that reminds me of, I forgot what I was going to say. You lost your words. Can I just say this real quick? It's going to pop on the bottom. A forgetful disciple is a lost disciple. And the church of Laodicea, we're going to see something. They forget why they were created. They didn't get lost in the kitchen. They got lost in the world. Now, I get lost in the kitchen. It cost me a few minutes of my life. You get lost in the world, it could cost you your whole life. The, the, the um, Church of Laodicea, they didn't lose their words. They lost their purpose. They lost their fulfillment. They lost their, 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 their inheritance, if you will. Oof, a forgetful disciple is a lost disciple. So Jesus comes on the scene to remind them some things. Let's, let's look at the word real quick. Revelation uh, 3, 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. Oof, ready for this? These are the words of the amen and the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Stop. Let's just look at this real quick. I wish you were either hot or cold. Is Jesus saying he wants you to be cold-hearted? So I've heard some people teach it this way, but theologians really do unpack it really well. That, that God doesn't want you to be cold-hearted. What he's saying is, is that the lukewarm Christian is even more lost than the cold-hearted person. The hot Christian knows who their God is, who they're living for. The cold person knows, I don't want to live for God. I'm going to live for the world. So the cold person at least knows where they're lost. They're, lo they're, they're choosing the world. But the lukewarm Christian, that's the most dangerous place to be. You don't know where you're at. You don't know if you're for God or you're for the world. You don't know if, if you're living God's way or you're living the world's way. You're in this lukewarm place. So God's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. 
but you're in the most dangerous spot. You're lukewarm. You're so lost. And he goes on to say, he goes, it didn't make him angry. Isn't it interesting that God says, I'm so angry you're lukewarm. He doesn't say I'm angry. He doesn't even say he's greed. He says it brings this guttural reaction of making him want to puke. Forgetful disciples are mean disciples. Forgetful disciples, lost ones, are judgmental disciples. It's Jesus saying, did you forget how good I was to you and now you're not good to others? Have you forgotten how great I was to you and you're not great to others? Have you forgotten how forgiving and merciful I am with you and so therefore you are not uh, merciful and kind to others? Oh, forgetful disciples are mean disciples. So he's saying, oh, it makes me want to puke to see somebody say I'm a disciple and then treat people like that. Let's keep going. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind and naked. Oof. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Can I just get you ready real quick? If you start sitting in this message and you start feeling convicted, you start feeling a little sad, good. <laughs> there are going to be people who listen to this message and feel nothing. They're going to be apathetic to it. And Jesus says, I discipline the ones I love. AKA, when you feel a conviction in your soul, it's one of the greatest gifts from God. You feel this, oh Lord, I'm alive in you still. Oh, I mourn over this. I mourn that I've been lost in my way, lost in comfort, lost in political stuff. I've been lost and I feel convicted over it. Oh, don't, don't fight that. The Lord's saying, I love those ones. Literally, when you start to feel something in your chest, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, know that the Lord is doing something hard. That's not a bad thing, that's a great thing. Oh, you're alive. Oh, you're alive in Christ. Conviction's not a bad thing. It directs us to greatness. Let's keep going. Here I am. Stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Stop. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that whoever has ears, that they would hear. Oh, that I pray that ears would be open today to your gospel. God, that the good news would be preached today, that, that people would know that Jesus is king, that he loves people where they're at, but loves them too much to leave them there. God, that you love us too much to allow us to be lost in comfort, to be lost in legalism, to be lost in political uh, uh, passion. But God, you want to bring us back to the reason why we were created and put on this planet. Oh God, I pray that my words would fall to the floor and that your words would soar. And everybody said, amen. Now, I got to tell you a couple of things. They were a forgetful church. Now, you see this uh, verse right here. It says, uh, I know all things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Where did they get lost? What made God spit on my mouth? I want, I want to show you a couple of things it says. It says that they said, I am rich. They were lost in riches. I've acquired wealth. They were lost in the comfort of wealth. And they don't need a thing. I wrote down four things they were lost in. Let's just look at it real quick. And then we're going to uh, go on to the big part. First thing, they forgot they needed help. Jesus said in this letter, you said you don't need a thing. Have you forgot you need help? The church of Laodicea, let me tell you about that city, Laodicea. There was a major earthquake in this region, major earthquake. Earthquake. Only one city didn't ask for help from the Roman Empire. It was the church of Laodicea. It was the city of Laodicea. They were so rich. They were the Wall Street of Turkey, if you will. They had so much money, a major earthquake that decimated cities. There was one city that didn't need to ask for help, Laodicea. You don't think that starts to seep into the disciples? You don't think that starts to seep into the churches and seep into the region where, hey, in this region, we don't ask for help. We don't need a thing. 
We got the money. You know what else they had? They had one of the greatest medical centers. Does this sound familiar at all? We have one of the greatest medical centers, Stanford Medical Center in our area. We are one of the richest regions in the world. We don't need help from anybody. Does this sound like a similar place to you at all? It's fascinating that when you get in a culture of places where Jesus says, you think you don't need a thing, they were lost. They forgot, if you will, that they needed help. A forgetful disciple is a lost disciple. They forgot they needed help. Next thing is they forgot they were poor. They forgot they were poor. They, they said that they, they had all this richness and wealth, but, but Jesus said, no, you're miserable, naked, and poor. So they got lost and forgetful in this simple way. Isn't it fascinating that we can actually believe the lie that the world can satisfy our soul? Isn't it fascinating that we believe that if we get the, all the promotions and all the wealth and all the accolades, then then we'll have what we actually think we need? And the reality is, is that they forgot they were poor. It's interesting, the more and more you get Sometimes it's the poorer you get. I had a, a gentleman who goes to our church. Um, I didn't ask for permission to share it, so I'm not going to use his name, but you know you are. Much love for you. Uh, loved our coffee a few weeks ago. It was when I was teaching on tithing. And he said, God could give you the numbers to a lottery ticket, and you could win the Powerball for a billion dollars. And he said, that would be an amazing thing, but the church would be full of money, but the disciples would be empty because they would have never given a thing to the church. They would, they would basically not participate in what they're built to do, and that's to sow into God's house. That is uh, to just attend because if you won the lottery, we could hire everybody. We don't need anybody to serve anymore. If we won the lottery, we just go buy a building, and nobody got to sow into the, the victory of the building. There is fulfillment in building the house. He's saying to the church of Laodicea, you forgot you're poor. You have everything, but really you have nothing. You're naked and you're miserable. Isn't it fascinating that we're in the richest region, but we're also in the most depressed region? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, wealth doesn't satisfy our soul. Maybe, just maybe, promotions don't satisfy our soul. Maybe, just maybe, houses don't satisfy our soul. Maybe those things don't clothe us. His love clothes us. They were lost in their poverty. They forgot how to get dressed. They forgot how to get dressed. He literally says this to him. He says, hey, uh, I got an idea. Put on the road that I got. Buy from me. Can I just tell you real quick, there's only a few places in the whole world that actually influence what people wear. You got Paris, you got New York, and you got California. We influence the world. And what he's saying is, just like Laodicea, they were influencing the fashion world. They had this beautiful red fabric, a purple fabric, if you will, that would come out of this town. So they were influencing how people dressed. And can you, can you imagine being in the epicenter of a place that had wealth and fashion and medical advances? What else would you need? You can, you can cover up everything with wealth. You can cover it up with the right clothes, cover it up with the, the right uh, medicine, cover it up with the uh, amount of money so you wouldn't need anything. But the problem is, is they were trying to cover themselves, and Jesus is saying, there's not enough things to cover what I can cover. There's not enough of this world to take care of what I can take care of. Let me, let me review this real quick. They forgot how to get dressed, they forgot they were poor, and they forgot they needed help. Forgetful disciples are lost disciples. So let's look at this real quick. The last one is the kicker, and this is where we're going to land. They forgot why they were alive. They forgot why Jesus woke them up in the morning. They forgot why there was breath in their lungs. There's this verse in there where he says, you're blind. You can't even see why I give you breath. He says, you're blind. What are they blind to? Are they blind to the beauties of the world? No, they, they enjoy the beauties. Are they blind to people? No, they see people. What are they blind to? They're blind to their purpose. They forgot why they're alive. Jesus is saying, you're blind to why I've created you. You're blind to why you're on this earth. You're blind to why your eyes are opened and I've given you breath. You're blind to why I gave you another day on the earth. You're blind. You've forgotten why I created you. You've forgotten why you're alive. A forgetful disciple is a lost disciple. 
You know, I love about Jesus. He doesn't stop it there. He brings this invitation and says, come eat with me. Come eat with me. Now, I want you to check this real quick. Uh, we're in 2020, a doozy of all years, if you will, okay? Hey, just, I think it's time for us just to tip our cap to 2020 and say, hey, good swing. I get it, okay? Well done, 2020. But what's nice about this swing from 2020 is that we're not down and on the map. We're still moving. We're still building as a church. We're still going to um, start meeting. We're going to do some backyard gatherings. We're trying to sign a lease on our property so we can even start worshiping together again. 2020 is not going to stop the church from building. But I do tip my cap. It's been refining. It's been attacking. It's been tough. 2020 was tough. But let's go back to the days of Jesus. Let's go back to the days where the disciples... Uh, we're left with the mandate of building great disciples after Jesus left. Let's go back to that time. How did the church survive? No, let's not use the word survive. How did the church during the time of Jesus under the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in all the world that hated Christianity, that was barbaric and just absolutely worshipped all kinds of different gods, all kinds of different things. How in the world did a little Jewish sect uh, religion that birthed Christianity, how did it turn Rome upside down and change the world? Not did it, how did it survive? How did it revolutionize the world? Now, are we going through what the disciples went through during that time? No, actually, I submit to you that they were going through way worse. There was plagues. There was sickness. There was persecution. If you believed in Jesus and you were a committed follower, you'd be set on fire or fed to lions or uh, used for other terrible things. This is what they had to go through. How did they change the world? How? And when I was going through my studies, and thank goodness for uh, Lagos and Great minds like William Barclay and uh, historians, uh, Kenneth Scott Legruet. I don't even know how to say his last name, so I'm just going to call him Kenny. Uh, he, he writes this seven-volume um, encyclopedia, basically, on the history of the church and why it thrived in each season. And it's a, a historical look, but he also looks at a bunch of other historians on why the church changed the world. And there's four that a lot of historians land on, but they all four short, fall short, basically. They're all superficial. And, and, and we're going to get to why the church was uh, the vehicle that changed the Roman Empire and why the church today will be the vehicle to change the world again. Can I say this to you real quick? The church in Acts had something that we need again. The church in Acts had something that was just, it seemed like this ace up their sleeve where they just, no matter what was thrown at them, they just stood up again and say, man, I love you and I love my king. Oh, you killed my friend, I'm still building the house. Oh, I didn't get the promotion, I'm, building, I'm still gonna build the house. They had something that maybe, maybe us American Christians we've missed out on. Maybe we're the forgetful ones and we're a little lost too. I'm gonna tell you what it is. Revelation 3.19, I believe it's this, and we're gonna come full circle. I'm gonna drop in your lap and then we're gonna come back to it, okay? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, says in Revelation 3.19. We said this. He basically said, I discipline and uh, rebuke those who I love. He asked them to come back a certain way. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. So lukewarm makes Jesus puke. What's the opposite of being a lukewarm Christian? He asks us to be zealous. So let's, let's unpack the word zealous real quick. He asks us to be passionate. He asks us to... Um, be a fanatic, if you will. The zealous word literally means to be about one thing, to be about one thing. So Jesus says, hey, this type of Christianity, this type of church, this type of disciple, 
It makes me puke. You're more lost than you know. You know what kind of Christianity I want from you? I want a zealous Christianity. Do you know what happens in a very affluent area like Laodicea? Nobody wants to be seen as a fanatic. Nobody does. That, that guy, he's a fanatic. She's a fanatic. It's, we don't even like the word. You know, fanatic, of course, you now is broken down to fan in our world. And when we think of fanatic or a fan, we think of somebody who is a huge Warriors fan. They got the gear. They got the seats uh, at the games. They know all the players. They can tell you the starting five. When you talk to them, like, you start talking about the Warriors, they're just like, their eyes light up. They're like, oh, yeah, do you remember 1999 when they did this? Remember this year? And then remember, oh, who do you think we're going to draft to the number two spot? I hope we don't get Lonzo Ball this year. Who do you think we're going to get? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I, we're not done. Steph Curry, he's going to be healthy. Clay Thompson, let's go, Clay. Hey, Draymond, he's not so bad of a guy. We love him, too. I mean, this is what happens when you talk to a fan who's a Warrior. And so I think it's stolen the meaning of what Jesus says to be a zealous. The, the word simply means to be about one thing. So what does that mean for you? Tyler, are you saying I can't be about my marriage? I just have to be about Jesus? Let me say it a different way. No, no, no. Here's what you need to do. Your marriage needs to be about Jesus. One thing. Well, am I not supposed to be about my job? No, your job should be about one thing, glorifying Jesus. Well, what about my kids? I can't be about my kids. No, your kids should be about one thing, glorifying Jesus. Oh, well, what about ministry? Well, my ministry, I'm not supposed to be about ministry. No, my ministry is about one thing. It's about glorifying Jesus. I'm all about one thing. My whole life is about one thing, bringing glory to his name. Can I unpack something real quick for you? There's seven churches, and they're called the seven lampstands. A lampstand is not a lamp. It holds the lamp. And he's saying to the lampstands, hey, your one job, your one thing is to take yourself and your life and hold a banner, something brighter than you. And it's the lamp, and his name is Jesus. You are the one that holds it. You're the one that says, look how beautiful he is. Look at the gospel. Don't look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm broken. But look at what he's doing in my life. Look at his goodness. Look at his joy. Look at his peace. And Jesus is saying to the churches, you are called to be a lampstand and hold my beauty. You are, so you have one job. One job, this is it. One thing, your marriage should be a lampstand to show my beauty. Your job should be a lampstand to show my beauty. Your church should be a lampstand to show my beauty. And what has happened in this church is he's saying, I can't keep my lampstand here if it's next to politics. I can't keep my lamp here if it's next to money. I can't keep my lamp here if it's next to comfort. This lamp is, is, is for one thing only. This lampstand, it cannot share with anything else. So I'm asking you, will you remove wealth? Will you remove riches and use, my, use your life to be a lampstand again? This is what he's saying in Revelation 3.19. Be zealous about it. Well, my life, I hold one thing very closely, and his name is Jesus. Okay, I'm going I'm to take this job, but if I take this job, it's got to glorify my Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to give money, but it's not going to glorify my name. I'm giving money because it's going to glorify Jesus. I'm going to serve. I'm not going to serve because I want to feel good. I'm going to serve because it's going to glorify Jesus. So for 50 years of the early church birth, the disciples had that one thing. All right, I'm going to die. Guess what my dying is going to do? Woo! Look at the beauty of my God. I have gloriously waited for this day is what disciples would say on the day of their death. Disciples would be being persecuted and they say, let me show you some beauty real quick and his name is Jesus. They're all about one thing. Now, the historians break it down to four things they think is why. They, they ask the question. They say, why? Why? Why, why, why was the world changed by these, these ragtag groups? What, what was it? And if I could just uh, show you real quick, it's four things that historians say and they're all true, but they're all lacking the depth of the real answer. Asking why, and that is a good question to ask. Why is it that the church in Roman time turned the world upside down? And why aren't we doing it today? I think it's a good question to ask why. And so the, the four things that uh, Kenneth, let's call him Kenny, the historian, unpacks here 
is he basically says that a lot of historians say it was absolute truth, that Christians came on the scene during Roman time, and the Roman civilization was crumbling because it basically had so many truths to pick from. It was the very first melting pot of the world. And now a melting pot would look like hundreds of different philosophies, hundreds of different religions. You would walk into a market and you would say, you'd see people saying, this is the right way, this is the right way, this is the right God, no, this is the right God, this is the right God. And so all throughout the marketplace in Rome now, it was the first time that the modern world was exposed to a bunch of choices of what absolute truth could be. Now, the reality is, is that absolute truth of right and wrong, of having a truth, does bring stability to a civilization. And what's happened here in Rome, we're going to unpack, and what the Christians started doing, people started seeing, was they started offering an absolute truth. And that's a great thing. I, I remember even talking to Rachel. She, uh, I, we didn't grow up the same way. I didn't grow up in church. So people who don't grow up in church, I was 16, so I already had all the other offers of what truth is. Hey, live this way. Live for sports. Live for money. Live for this. Live for that. Find your fulfillment that. So when I was 16, I got saved. I found out what real truth is, and his name is Jesus. My wife, Rachel, I'll never forget her telling me her testimony. She said she grew up in a Christian home. She got saved in the womb, basically, like, you know, like kicked the womb, basically, and came out saved. Uh, lived a just flawless childhood life, you know, just, you know, uh, the, the, the way a Christian kid should live. You know, did all the right things, Christian school, you know, on the homecoming court, great grades. Goes to UCLA, and she said she went to UCLA, and it was the first time in her life that she was exposed to other philosophies. Nietzsche would uh, uh, would be talked about in class, different ways to live your life. And she had to go on this journey because it was the first time she was exposed to other truths that could be choosed. She went on her journey and, and it, in a few years she realized, man, like the world does not have the truth. And she really fell in love with the Lord in her 20s. And what the Christians did is they just offered a different truth. And I could put it this way. is that their truth actually brought change. And we're going to talk about this. There's four different points, and I'm going to connect it to the fourth point. Forgive me, but the, the Christians brought this truth of a way to live. They brought a truth to sexuality. And they said, this is how sex should be handled. It should be handled in marriage. Sex, sex is spiritual, they would say. It's, it's something that binds two in, into one. And in the Roman Empire, the homes were crumbling. Marriages were crumbling. Things were crumbling. And the Christian came in and said, man, if you treat sex this way in marriage, watch what happens in your marriage. They would bring truth to that. They would bring truth to finances. If you live for finances and you're not generous, you're going to become a very greedy uh, a person that's going to be bad for your soul. They would bring truth to finances. So Kenny, our historian, says this is a satisfactory answer of why the Christians changed the world. But it's, it's too superficial. There's not enough there. He goes on to say another thing that uh, historians say of why the, uh, the Christians changed the world in that time is it was very inclusive. It was a really inclusive uh, uh, religion. Now, it, during this time, the, the reality was that uh, religion was oriented around men. It was centric, like it was for men. Men were better, women were here. And Christianity came around and became inclusive and said, no, we're elevating men and women. They are, uh, they are equal, of course not the same. We have different strengths and attributes, but they are equal. This, is an, this was a, a brand new inclusive thing where women could be a part of it, not only be a part of it, but serve and lead in the movement of Christianity. So it was inclusivity. Uh, not only that, uh, uh, religions and philosophies during that time was for the rich. The poor weren't, weren't a part of it. 
And so the, the gospel comes around and says, the gospel is for the rich and poor. The gospel is for the uh, educated and uneducated. The, 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 the philosophies of religion at that time were for the educated. The uneducated didn't even understand it. And, and Jesus comes on the scene with this gospel message, and Christianity becomes this inclusive thing that says, man, woman, rich, poor, sinner, saint, whatever you are, it's the gospel's for you. I want to read you a quote I came by this, uh, this week, and it says this, when the gospel has become bad news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted and imprisoned, and good news to the proud, self-righteous, and privileged, oh, it is no longer the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, maybe it was because of all the inclusivity uh, uh, of the gospel. But he goes, again, that's, that's just, that, that's maybe the answer. Maybe that's why. It's, it's a good why, but, but it's still kind of superficial. There's got to be more. Because here's the reality. All the other religions were offering truth. Their other religions were offering to be a part of something to a lot of different groups. But th this, this inclusivity thing was, again, something special about the gospel. How about the third one? I don't know how to say the, the word, so I, I, I'm going to use a more simple word for us. Uh, so they were flexible, but they're intransient. Another way you can say this, they were chill. Christians were chill, but they were committed. They were flexible, but they were strong as a rock. They were the most perfectly balanced movement you ever did see. What do I mean by that? So if you were going to say yes to religion back then, let's say yes to a Jewish religion, you would have to wear what they wore, you would have to eat what they eat, you have to talk the way they talk. That's very strict religion. Well, if you were going to say yes to Jesus and be a disciple, wear what you want to wear. Eat what you want to eat. They don't care about that. It was chill. You don't have to pray. Oh, pray. Just pray. You want to know the, 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 um, the worst way to pray? Don't pray. You want to know the best way to pray? Just start praying. That was Christianity. Like, there wasn't like, okay, here's how you do it. No, just start praying. Start talking to your God. So, so there was this flexibility on even how to encounter your God. The, the men could only go to the center courts in the religion there, but the, the Christianity was, there's no center courts. God's here. It's just flexible. You can meet God right here. There was a flexibility even how you worshiped God. But then there was this rock. Hardness. Do you know how they would, uh, the litmus test during Roman time, if you were a Christian or not, by the Romans? This is how they were testing. This is how they would try to find Christians. All right, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this, is, this, is, this would be a scenario. This was a common scenario to find out if somebody was actually a follower of Christ during this time. They would bring uh, people in. They were looking for Christians, basically trying to hunt them, if you will. And they would ask them this question. Okay, if you're not a Christian, I want you to worship this God right in front of me. And so there would be these 10 people, and all of them would be like, Okay, and then they'd worship this God in front of me. Now I want you to worship me, your emperor. Worship me. Worship me, the leader. They'd worship them like, well, they're obviously not Christians because real Christians don't worship just anything. The real Christians are so steadfast. They only worship one God. He's the way, the truth, the life. These people, they worship anything I tell them to worship. Okay, you can go be free in our world. You're fine in our own world because you worship everything like we worship because Eastern religions thought, thought God was in everything. So just worship everything. Okay, you're like us. You're good then. And then they bring in other Christians. And they say, bow down and worship this. And they would say, I cannot and I will not worship that. I worship the one and true God and his name is Jesus. And they would tell him, if you worship only God, it will cost you your life. It will cost you everything. We will, we will feed you to lions. We will set you on fire. You're not going to worship anything else? Nope. You can, you can wear what you want to wear to my church. You can eat what you want to eat. You can, pray, you, you can just pray whichever way you want to pray. But here's what I can't do at my church. I can't worship any other God. And they would kill that Christian. And so the historians would say it was because they had this perfect balance. They were so flexible. Oh, come be a part of it. But we have one God, and we do not budge from our one God. He is the Trinity. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is our God. 
So th th again, great answer, but there's something missing with this why. Maybe that's why they changed the world. And fourth, simply this is, there was this evident fruit that they were changing lives in Rome, and it caught their eye. Rome at this time, you've got to understand when the church was around, it was crumbling before their very eyes. People were becoming barbaric. The family system was breaking down. There were riots happening. Does this sound at all relevant to us right now? Things were falling down in front of Rome, and they were looking for something to fix it. And they saw one, I want to read you what a historian said. Thousands of Christians found power to forsake evil and lead decent lives, and their neighbors saw it. So they just, Roman just said, these people are different. That, I used to know that guy, and now he's kind and generous. These people are different. They take care of each other. They're merciful. They're kind. They're loving. They're always a part of the solution and never a part of the problem. They're different. They're changed. And so, again, they, they would look at these four, and they would say, this is, this, this must, we got to choose this one. Again, all four good answers. Now, let's get back to the question. Kenneth Scott Leguret said, we have to ask the question, why these Christians change the world? And I think we got to ask ourselves why, why we aren't or why we can change the world. Simon Sinek wrote a book, and it's called Start With Why. you got to start with why. If you start with why, you're on your way. You're going to start a business? Start with why you want to start that business. You're going to do this? you got to start with your why. It's a great book. I actually love that principle. But when it comes to the gospel and it comes to me live my life, it's the wrong answer. It's the wrong thing to start with. Can we go back to Revelation 3? Can I, can I help you forgetful disciples? Forgetful disciples are lost disciples. What is Jesus' uh, remedy? What is his medicine? What is his thing that's going to fix these lukewarm Christians so they can go again, be zealous, and change the world? What is it? He invites them to have a meal with him. Let me read it to you real quick. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. What is he saying at this moment? What is his remedy to, to greatness? He's saying this. The reason why the Christians changed the world, it wasn't why they shared truth. It wasn't why they brought balance. It wasn't why, why. Here's what he's saying. He goes, let me not remind you of the why. Let me remind you of the who. You forgot who I am. I am the great I am. I am the cosmic king. Let me remind you of who I am. I am love. Let me remind you of who I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. You have a meal with me, you'll never want to do anything else. The real answer to why the Christians changed the world is they had an encounter with the great I am. And Jesus is saying, if you want to change the world, don't start with why, start with who. Who are you falling in love with? Who are you worshiping? Who are you giving your life to? It is a who question. And he says, oh, if you want to go out of this lost lukewarmness and become a great disciple, just have a meal with me. And I love his confidence. You're going to love who you have a meal with. Look at Paul. What, what, why did Paul go from this killer and sinner to the greatest man? He encountered God. And now when we encounter the Holy Spirit, we encounter the power of God. It is this thing that happens in our life that we just can't be the same anymore. I, the world loses its power over me because I've met a power bigger than it. This, this world loses its control over me because I have a God that has a love that compels and controls me. And this week, great disciples, start with who? There's an invitation from God. The reason why we're going to change the world is not why uh, we should do this or why we do that. Those are good questions, and those are part of the scenario. We should share absolute truth. Can I be honest? America is starving for it. They are starving for the truth, and his name is Jesus. Oh, they're starving for inclusivity. Oh, they're starving for it. 
And we have so many weird preferences in church today. So many weird things that are saying, well, you got to do this and don't do that. And it's just the opposite of being a flexible people. Worship God and be really flexible, please. The third one's simply this. Oh, they're not moving. I worship my God every day. I will not bow down to this world. I will not bow down to some movement that it doesn't glorify God. I will not bow down to a political party. I will not bow down to an ideology. I bow down to one, and his name is Jesus. This is what's going to change the world. But how do you do that? You have lunch with your Savior. You have a meal with him. And you have a meal with the Lord every day. We call it communion. We're taking it next week. But you should be taking communion every day. Every meal you should be treating it like a communion. We're forgetful people. To the forgetful disciple, start remembering a little better. Forgetful disciples are lost disciples. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for what you're doing in the church. And God, I do, I believe that you are calling a lukewarm region to become hot again. Maybe hot for the first time to be uh, a passionate disciple. I even pray for the one right now that you're brand new to church. And this message, you're like, woo, okay, time out, What? Hey, bear with me. You're going to start a journey, but you want to say yes to Jesus. There's a lot you're going to learn. You're going to hear about the gospels and the disciples. Uh, You're going to hear about the good news. But if you're somebody who just today, even this message, even being in Revelation, something tugged on your heart, you want to say yes to Jesus. You want to be a great disciple. You've been lost. Here's what you got to do. You got to have a meal with Jesus. And here's how you say yes to having a meal with Jesus. You literally tell somebody, I want to say yes to Jesus. And you pray a prayer. You have an encounter with God. You say, oh, Jesus, I confess with my mouth that I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. Oh, I confess I need you, Jesus. I need you. Just like the Laodiceans, they're lost. They didn't know they needed a thing. There's something powerful about every day saying, God, I need you. I need you to feed me, and I need you to lead me. Oh, if that's you, I want to pray for you today. The second thing is if you want to tell somebody you want to say yes to Jesus, have them pray with you. Uh, um, say in the YouTube chat, say yes. Uh, email us uh, on the website, and we'll have a pastor follow with you. Call somebody. Tell somebody you said yes. And to the second person I want to talk to, the lost disciples, start remembering again. Start remembering how good he is. Start remembering how gracious he was with you and is with you. Remember how merciful and forgiving he is, how loving he is. And when you remember those things, you'll actually start becoming those things. May we not be forgetful disciples and start just bashing people. Oh, may we start loving people. Vision Church, I love you. I can't wait to preach next week. Take care. Be blessed. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.